Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am delighted to welcome back to the programme the author Kay Gordon Newfeld, who has joined us a couple of times in the past to talk about the Moonies, the uh, so-called Unification Church of the late Sun Myung Moon, in which he was heavily involved for many years, and also to talk about his responses to those experiences as a creative writer. And and uh, as these uh, interviews that I've just talked about are now a few years old, let me remind listeners that Gordon is a freelance writer living in Alplaus, New York, a master's graduate of the University of British Columbia in creative writing. His books include Heartbreak and Rage, Ten Years Under Sun Myung Moon, a cult survivor's memoir, also cult fiction, one writer's creative journey through an extreme religion, and what we're going to be talking about today, his latest book, Profit and Loss, Stories of Extreme Beliefs. So, Gordon, welcome back to the show. It's great to be speaking to you again. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, I'm very glad to be back, and uh, thank you for that nice introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. I said this new book of yours, Profit and Loss, Stories of Extreme Beliefs. Of course, uh, Profit there spelt with a P-H, as uh, I think people probably will will have predicted. It's going to be this guiding uh, force in our conversation today. I am enjoying reading it. I have to admit, as I said to you before we started the interview, I've not quite finished it. I am almost there. Yes. It is a work of fiction to an extent. It's a collection of short stories, but fiction that's clearly based on plausible scenarios. Uh, I think some... More plausible than others, but nevertheless, basically yeah. plausible scenarios, and some of it uh, resembling uh, having some connection to episodes in your own life. Um, yes. So, although I'm not generally drawn to fiction, this is certainly an exception because uh, I very much appreciate what you're doing through these short stories, and I think they are very well written indeed. I think they have a, a charm and a depth that's uh, very worthwhile to read and ponder. So I'm recommending this very much. It's a short read, but very worthwhile. And um, I actually think it would be good to perhaps read one of these little stories each day and meditate upon the lessons in there. So the book's subtitle is Stories of Extreme Beliefs. So my first question before we get anywhere else today is going to be, what do you mean by extreme beliefs? And the reason why I'm asking this is because the term extreme or extremism, something we've been talking a lot about on this program over the years, and it's often used by governments and others in a kind of ill-defined or not at all defined way, which could therefore be open to abuse. So again, what do you mean by extreme beliefs? I was trying to find a term because the word cult is so loaded. And really, my concern is about cultic ideas. Sometimes they're called high demand groups because they place a lot of pressure on you to conform, to fear leaving, and so on. But I, I was looking for some analogy because some of the stories in, in the collection are about people who are not necessarily in a cultic group, but they've taken their thoughts in a direction that's extreme. So I wanted to cover all the bases. For example, there's a story in there, you may not have gotten to it yet, mm-hmm. of a man who used to belong to a sort of a transcendental meditation type group. He left them and now he's involved in a multi-level marketing scheme. And the irony, of course, is that the multi-level marketing scheme has some resemblances to a cult. And so I was playing on that. And that, in fact, is based a little bit on my own experience. So the term extreme beliefs as a subtitle was a way of catching that kind of thing as well as more conventional cult type stories. Yeah, I think I know what you're driving at with this. I mean, one of the things that really came over to me in the majority of the stories that I have read is this suppression of what we would normally consider to be normal human behaviors, normal human thoughts and feelings. Uh, One might say, you know, suppression of normal humanity. I know that's that's a bit vague, but um, would you agree that that kind of thing could be at the core of what you mean here? Yes, uh, a lot of my stories are concerned with uh, how the person who is caught up in it no longer can see their own best interest, and it might take some outside influence to remind them of what they once wanted or dreamed of, Hmm. that sort of thing, and why they are deciding to put it all aside for whatever reason and just give themselves over to the group or to the guru or whatever it is. 
Yeah. Okay, so the obvious question here is why did you choose to write about these kinds of matters in this kind of way? I mean, you could easily have written a textbook. <laughs> so why yes. well, why short stories as well? Uh, it is simply because that has been my lifelong dream, is to be a fiction writer. Hmm. When I went to the University of British Columbia and took creative writing, I originally planned to pursue fiction writing and ultimately a novel. But while I was there, it became clear that I could not move on until I had written my own real story as a member of the Unification Church of Reverend Moon. So that's why I produced my first book, Heartbreak and Rage. And that was written in part while I was at the university. So I ended up turning in a master's thesis that was a nonfiction manuscript, and it was only part of the book. I pursued that for a while, and I continued writing nonfiction, but my heart was always in, ultimately, I want to do stories. And then around 2003, I started writing more and more stories about people caught up in cult-like groups, and not just the Unification Church. And part of that was because I started attending these conferences from the International Cultic Studies Association, where I would meet people who had been in other groups. And I would notice the similarities between what they went through and what I went through. But I would also be intrigued by the backstory, what what happened to them. Hmm. For example, in my book, there is one story of a young woman caught up in the Opus Dei sect. And that was inspired by meeting a former member of Opus Dei when I attended an ICSA conference. And she related her experiences to a group of people. And I said, wow, this twigged something in me. And I said, I can do a story about that. So that's how the work came into the collection. The work, yes, one of the stories, actually one I want to ask you about. Yes, a very interesting story. And of course, having them presented as short stories like this does mean you can explore different beliefs. And I was also interested that you don't just stick to cults, but you also turn your attention to mainstream religion that can go off the rails in various ways and produce cult-like behavior. And I was very interested that you did that. I think your first story will touch on that. we get to that in a minute. Um, So we will return to the book, but I think as it has been such a long time since we last spoke, 2014, in fact, many listeners will be unfamiliar with you and the unificationist religion. So I think we should start with a kind of recap there. Could you give us a quick taste of who the Moonies are and what they believe? All right, so the Unification Church, otherwise known as the Moonies, although they don't like that term, is a group that was founded by Reverend Sun Myung Moon, a Korean man, in the early 1950s. And that group is basically a messianic group. They regard Sun Myung Moon as having been sent as the successor to Jesus Christ. They do not literally believe that he was divine, but they believe that he was so completely inspired by God that he might as well have been. And they believe that he was appointed by God to finish the task that Jesus Christ was unable to complete, which is to save the whole world and bring the whole world into what they call the kingdom of heaven on earth. So Sun Myung Moon was, as I understand it, he was born around 1920. His family was originally Buddhist, but converted to the Presbyterian faith. He grew up in that faith, and then he claims that he had a revelation in 1936 while praying, and Jesus basically asked him, can you take over from me and finish what I set out to do? So in the Unification Church belief, what Jesus could not do was get married and have perfect families and effectively completely restore the fall. Now, there's a whole complex theology here that's too much to go into. But <laughs> well, I will, I will ask you actually just a little bit about that in a minute. I just want to clarify one thing. So, Sun Myung Moon himself was not claiming to be Jesus come back. Mm-hmm. He was carrying the baton that had been given to him by Jesus to complete the work that supposedly Jesus had failed to do. Yes, you're, you've got it right. He doesn't claim to be literally Jesus or reincarnation or anything like that. He claims to be God's decided, okay, I need a successor, and according to the church doctrine, 
It took 2,000 years to properly prepare a successor, and then it was time, and Moon was appointed. Right, okay. And he is no longer with us. Yeah. I understand when you last spoke to me that, is it his son is now in charge of the organization? Is that right? Well, it's split up into three. Ah. And I'm not even fully on top of the fissures and cracks in the in the organization, but right. basically the classic organization is run by Reverend Moon's wife, who is substantially younger than him. Ah. And her name is Hawk Jahan, and she is called the True Mother. And from what I've heard, she's already modifying the doctrines of the church so that she is, in effect, subsuming the role that Moon himself had. She's like the Messiah in his place. Hmm. So there's that faction. And then there's another faction that is almost like a business empire run by one of the sons of Moon, which was Preston Moon. Um, I'm afraid they all have Oriental names that are hard to remember, but he runs a group that is kind of like either you could call it a movement or um, an organization or something. People who get involved with that, as I've been told, do so because he offers them a form of employment. So they're not really all that religiously oriented, but they still probably revere Preston Moon as if he were the real thing, the Messiah's successor. Mm-hmm. And then there's still a third group by another son of Sun Myung Moon, and this is a very curious group. They're called the Sanctuary Church. I actually visited them once. They're in uh, Pennsylvania. And this group has taken to a very strange version of Moon's doctrine, where they believe that the AR-15 assault rifle is the rod of iron in the Book of Revelation. Right. And, okay. And mm-hmm. so all members of the group are supposed to have some kind of firearm, preferably an AR-15. Mm. And they are a small group. But when I went to visit, I met people that I had known years ago in the regular Unification Church before Moon passed. These people had now assembled with this son of Moon. And I understood in a way why they wanted to be part of that group, because it recaptures in a way that neither the mother nor the other son can do. It recaptures that fervor, that feeling of, I'm really saving the world. I think that's what has gone on in the church, is sort of split into three. Mm -hmm. You have sort of your classic or standard doctrine, and then you have just the business side, and then you have the fervent or fundamentalist side. Mm. Mm, A return to the fundamentals. Yes, interesting. Okay, so what are those fundamentals? You said that we haven't time to go into a great deal of detail about that. Agreed, we don't. Um, So let me ask you some pointed questions that maybe quickly will lead us through some of the main points. Um, Okay, so my understanding is that it is a mixture of some Christian thought, but some Taoist thought, some Confucianist thought, a bit of Korean folk religion, um, all kind of mixed together. And God is not a trinity, but I suppose as of Taoism is a kind of polarity, is male and female. Um, the Holy Spirit is impersonal, um, and Jesus is not God, not really. Have I got that right? That, that's all basically right, yes. Okay, so we have quite a divergence there from Christian doctrine. So when it comes to the plan of salvation, we have at the core of this the serpent seed doctrine, So could you explain just how that goes so that we can then discuss what the plan of salvation would be based upon this serpent seed doctrine? All right. So the the way they used to talk about it when I was a member was they called it the chapter two problem. And chapter two of divine principle is the chapter where Reverend Moon explained that the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve and the fall of man is symbolic And what actually happened was that Lucifer, as the serpent, seduced Eve. Now, he wasn't literally a serpent, but he was was an archangel, and he seduced Eve. And according to their belief, it was possible for a spiritual being, such as an angel, to have sexual relations with a physical person like Eve. So Okay, right. So this is not symbolic of temptation in general or estrangement from God in general, but a, an actual physical sexual act. Yes. Okay. And then she was ashamed and realized she'd done something wrong. 
she turned to Adam and tempted him with the same thing because she said, God intended me to be his wife, so I'll do that to make up for my mistake. Mm -hmm. And so then Adam and Eve got together, and that was also a fall. And that's why uh, this story goes the way it does with the fall of man. And human beings are corrupted because they have, in effect, inherited the seed of the serpent, the seed of Lucifer, and they must have it somehow taken away. And so, according to Moon's doctrine, the way to have it taken away is to participate in one of his mass weddings and to receive the holy wine. And once you receive the holy wine, you are conditionally forgiven. Original sin is removed, and then you can live a life free of sin, provided you continue to follow the doctrine. And you can have children who are born without the original sin in them. So that's how that goes. Right. And this is really very odd when you think back to the character of Jesus, because when we spoke last time, I was given to understand from what you said that according to Sun Myung Moon, Jesus himself should have married, should have had children, should have performed these blessings. But unfortunately, God's plan didn't work out at the time and Jesus got crucified. And therefore, that's why it was necessary for somebody to come later on, such as Sun Myung Moon, to complete the work of doing these blessings to bring the the kingdom about on earth. Now, that seems odd to me. (laughs) And I don't see how that squares with Christian thought at all. But have I got that right? Uh, that's that's basically all correct. Okay, right. So that's the general flavor of belief there. Um, well, now you got involved with this and you were in for quite a long time. And I think you were also heading for leadership of some sort, weren't you? You were in a training establishment and various things happened in your experience to make you feel extremely uncomfortable. And you did get out. Can you explain briefly how that happened? Yes. I was in the Unification Theological Seminary, which was at that time located in upstate New York and Barrytown, New York. And they were teaching students theology and philosophy and a variety of other disciplines. And the goal was kind of contradictory, which I don't think they admitted to themselves. They wanted the students to be sort of -of top-of-the-line students who knew all about theology and religion and you name it, and could then go out into the world and persuade other theologians and other philosophers, hey, Moon really knows knows this stuff. Moon's the one. Uh Yet what they weren't counting on is that if these students learned all this stuff, they would start to have doubts. Mm -hmm. So when I was a seminarian, there was a lot of friction with the other church members who regarded the seminarians as sort of like, they called them cemeterians sometimes. They regarded them as not really sticking to father's way, father meaning sun, young moon. So the seminarians would often be forced to sort of divide their minds into two, and usually they just couldn't quite do it. So what happened with me was that by the second year of my time at the seminary, I was starting to feel that, oh, the church is just not effective. It's not really getting all that many members. It's not really succeeding. And maybe the problem is that we don't care enough about each other. I started being a little bit different, and that got me sort of actually sent away from the seminary, just because I was not as conformist as before. And I started pursuing an interest I had in doing a particular psychological therapy, which I was still a part of the church and still doing as much as possible to support the church. But I was trying to also do this psychological treatment. And uh, I ended up finally deciding I had to step away from being a full-time member. And I went to live with my family in Canada for a while. And then I tried to rejoin because I still wanted to be married the official way, the way that Moon said you should be married in a mass wedding and so on. And then finally, it just got to the point where I felt like I can't go on. I'm burned out. I don't feel any authentic desire to continue doing this. And I don't want to just fake it like I saw some other members doing. I'm going to leave. Mm So it took 10 years years. to ultimately go through the whole process. Mm. 
And you had an experience with one of these blessings, didn't you? Yes. Where Moon had chosen somebody for you, but then you were under tremendous tension with that relationship. Because I, if I remember correctly, you, you weren't able to enter into a normal relationship immediately. You had to live apart. Yeah, they've changed the rules a lot since then. Uh-huh. But in the early 1980s, you could not immediately live with your partner. Reverend Moon would choose the person that you were to be married to. You would often not know that person at all, though that wasn't always the case, but often you wouldn't know that person. Did you have any say? Could you appeal in any way? Yes, you you had the right to refuse. Uh-huh. You could mm-hmm. say, I don't want that partner. Mm-hmm. But if you did that, you would feel like you were sort of going against the Messiah. Right. <laughs> so you, sure. people yeah. did do it, but you were usually encouraged to accept whomever Reverend Moon appointed for you. Mm-hmm. In my own case... What happened was that on the last day of 1980, Reverend Moon assembled a lot of people in New York City in that hotel that he actually owns. I believe it still belongs to them, but it now operates as a regular hotel with no obvious connection. But at the time, it was the Unification Church building. And Moon assembled all these members there. Many were from Europe. Some were from the United Kingdom, from all over the United States and Japan and so on. And he um, started pointing at people and saying, you and you, you and you. (laughs) Incredible. You have that in one of your stories, and one of them is the blessing. Yes. And yes, it's exactly what you describe. Just points at people, and they stand up, and then he points at somebody else. I suppose to go against that, if that's in Sun Myung Moon's mind and in the belief of the organization that that's what Moon has been given to do as a completion of Jesus' work to create these blessings, then to go against what he has said must be incredibly difficult to do. Yes, you, you, really, uh, you really had to think about it. So, in fact, what did happen to me was that on that occasion, Moon first appointed me to be with a woman from Switzerland. And I was prepared to go through with it, but she did not want to be matched, as they put it to me, because I was doing that psychological therapy in Los Angeles at the time. Right. So then I returned to the same room where Moon was doing these matchings a second time, and this time he appointed an English woman, and she was willing to accept what I was doing. So we, in fact were considered a couple, and I, I grew to like her as a person. But we were, were not allowed to live together then or later. We had to wait first for the mass wedding. We didn't know when that would occur. That was at Reverend Moon's discretion. In 1982, in the summer, he decided, okay, I'm going to do the mass wedding. And again, we assembled in New York City. By this time, I was very emotionally committed to this person. But again, even after the mass wedding, we weren't allowed to live together. And we were in an awkward situation because she lived in Scotland and later England, and I lived in Los Angeles. And to further complicate it, I was a Canadian citizen who really didn't have a proper visa. So... (laughs) I I, I mean, what an extraordinary doctrine, really. If you want your church to be successful, why choose to do something like that which causes such tension and frustration for people? It's almost inviting people to leave. I mean, what function did that doctrine serve? I would say its purpose is just to weed out all the people who aren't going to be just completely compliant. I I believe that cult-like individuals and leaders Mm. are focused on, I have to have people who are just going to do exactly what I say, I don't want to waste time on anybody else. I see. Yes. So, yes, a test of loyalty. Yes, I see. Uh, mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I did not end up living with that woman. She split from the church herself about two years later. She went for a time to France, but she was still sort of superficially connected to the church, but not very active with it. I was in Los Angeles, and finally, I went back to my family in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada for a while, and I was still determined to be married the way Moon said, because according to his doctrine, there was no other way to do it. Everything else was wrong. So Mm. I was waiting for them to match me up again. Mm. But then I just became disillusioned that the church could ever really, I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere in my life, basically. Mm. So then I had to make the choice, which was quite difficult to say, okay, forget about the church. I will try to find a partner on my own. So then I left the Unification Church in 1986. 
And it's interesting how that theme does come up a number of times in these stories, how your normal humanity is a light that's still shining there within you and casts light upon the darkness of this manipulation. True in your experience, and as I say, it appears in a number of these stories. Let's talk about some of these then. Now, I want to talk about the first one here, which has got the same title as your book, Profit and Loss. I think this is quite interesting because you describe a situation that arises out of a Christian fundamentalist background. You're not describing Christian fundamentalism, but something that arises out of it, an extremism that arises out of that situation. And uh, you describe the effect upon a very young woman who becomes devoted and engaged to this self-styled prophet from this Christian fundamentalist background. Now, this is disturbing uh, in a number of ways. You describe her pain as she is forced into this 40-day fast, no food, no water. They journey through the wilderness because he, this self-styled prophet, has this idea that he's been called by God to go on this particular journey for whatever reason. Um, and you personalize this with these flashbacks in the first person where she describes how this situation came about. And it's the incremental nature of this that I find interesting because there were warning signs there at the beginning when this self-styled prophet appeared at her church. But what he eventually became was very much more extreme and damaging, and of course, in the story, eventually results in her death. Um, is it that incrementalism that is the central message of that story? Yes. Um, it's a story that's based on something that actually happened. And because I'm from Calgary, Alberta, there was a person like the one in the story to whom some of the events similar to those happened. But I was not literally taking everything out of the news story. I was um, using my imagination to inhabit that space, that mental space where you feel you have to be, you have to be in charge and, and, and even your wife, you have to drag her along, even if she can barely hang on, you have to drag her along on the, this journey. Um, that story won a, a prize as the uh, best Canadian short story by Spine Tingler magazine in 2005. And it is based on a real event, which tragically happened in the Calgary area around, I think, 2000, something like that. So I think I was just trying to feel that event and to depict the loss in as forceful a way as possible, to make people feel how terrible it is that manipulators like this man could get hold of you and to such a degree that you'll lose your life over it. It is disturbing, but I think there are things to be learnt from it because this individual, as I say, he appears on the scene in this church setting and he has these private revelations. They're not checked. In fact, he's rather dismissive of the pastor. He and the pastor don't get on. He has this tendency to twist scripture. So he knows his Bible, but he doesn't read it. It's not a very biblical interpretation that he gives to Scripture. He he makes it say what he wants it to say. He's quite egotistical. And as I say, there isn't that humility of checking his beliefs with the pastor, but there's that tension between him and the pastor. He's quite controlling. A lot of these warning signs were there. But it's later on that you put these uh, words in his mouth where he says things like, um, I am the second coming or something like that. Yes. Which is clearly, I mean, if that had been there at the beginning, I think a lot of red flags would have been flying saying this guy is completely off the rails. But that comes out later in the story. There are some indications to start with, but I think anybody who was properly trained in biblical understanding would have noticed some of those. And I think the lesson to be learned from this is that we do need really good teaching in the churches so that these kinds of things can be spotted. Yes, and uh, if someone has that kind of charismatic way and starts taking over and and yet somehow it all points to how wise they are, how much they know, mm -hmm. that can lead to trouble, certainly. Yes, I was. Uh, I, I enjoyed that story, and I thought there were some interesting things to be taken from it. Although, as you say, it is disturbing that it ends up with her death. But okay, um, these things happen, as you say, they do. Um, could we talk about another one of these little stories here? One called "A Higher Plane." 
And this is one I'm wondering if it is slightly autobiographical. Yes. Um, it describes the experience of a young man, a student, getting drawn into a cult recruitment program called a Creative Community Project. Uh, he's not initially interested. In fact, he's a bit suspicious of these people. Uh, but he gets hooked into this anyway. And you explore some of the uh, interesting ways in which that can happen. Okay, so there are a lot of manipulation techniques at work here. So how would you say those techniques generally work on people, you know, to get them off the street, though wary initially, into a situation where their mind can be changed so dramatically? Yes. In fact, that story is probably the most autobiographical of all, because as I recount in my book, Heartbreak and Rage, I was indeed recruited by someone who claimed to be with the Creative Community Project in San Francisco, like the character and I did get taken up to a camp in Boonville, California, just like my character. And so I would say I was basically reliving what happened to me with just some minor variations. First, he gets persuaded to go for a couple of days. And then when he, a couple of days have passed, they persuade him to stay on for a week to really get it. And then when he stays on for the week... They say, well, why don't you just stay for the weekend since you're here anyway? It's more fun. So he stays for the weekend. And then he says, okay, now I'm definitely going to go. And they say, oh, maybe you just don't quite get it yet. Stay for another week and you'll really understand. Well, all of this actually happened to me. Mm. And the whole problem is that Joe, as it happened to myself, Joe didn't have another commitment that would pull him away. Yes. So he sort of reluctantly, but out of politeness, partly out of out of genuinely a concern that he might be missing something, he stays on until bang, it suddenly happens that he's he's in. And he feels like I have to commit to these people. So that's all much like what I experienced. Yes. Interesting. What you're saying there, you know, you say about, well, you may be missing out on something and you're wanting to be polite to these people. And I think certainly if I hadn't read the book and I was just listening to you speak there, I would think, okay, but that's not enough. How come you stayed? How come you were persuaded to stay yet a few more days, stay another weekend, etc.? And one thing that comes out a number of times is this notion of being praised. You're special somehow. Um, That seems to come over as a manipulation technique. To what extent people were using that consciously as a technique of manipulation, I don't know. That was just the way they were trained to be, and and out it came, and it had that effect. I don't know, but just to flatter you. Yes, uh, the Creative Community Project people back then, that was the late 70s, um, they called it love bombing. So the idea was you just really praise everyone, make them feel really valuable. (laughs) What a contrast was what later happens. But when you first start out, that's what they do. And and so you really feel like, wow, these people are so positive and they really think I have something valuable to say. And I recall that when I was caught up in this group in the very early stages, I would say critical things and they would sort of applaud a little bit less enthusiastically, but they would still, you know, allow my thoughts. And then they'd say, oh, you're so intelligent. And they'd sort of imply that the problem was not that I was seeing an actual flaw in their teaching, but that my intelligence was causing me to misunderstand it or overinterpret it or something. Mm. So you get this idea after a while oh, these concerns I have, these doubts, maybe I just need to park them for a while until it becomes clear. Mm. And then they stay parked for as long as you're caught up in the group. Mm. At one point in the story, the person divides into two halves psychologically. Oh, yes. They have all these misgivings, and they even express it to the group, as you've just described, but feel terribly guilty at that point. Yes. Ah, these are such lovely people. They value me so much. I don't want to upset them. Yes. And at that point, there is that mental division. And I get the impression it's not that these people have just been just nice to you in a, in a normal way, just to be encouraging, but over the top, over flattering um, in, in an unnatural way. But it worked so much on the character that it had this potential to divide the mind so that when there was this expression of misgiving, there was this terrible feeling of, these are such wonderful people. They've seen something in me that nobody else has seen. How can I upset them? And I think that was quite revealing in that story. And that presumably does chime with your experience. 
Yes, exactly. That was what I, in fact, really went through. Mm. I would say that the things that made it so that I would get caught up in a group like that were that I happened to go and meet them at a time when I wasn't immediately committed to a job or a school or anything like that or a person. So if they said, why don't you stay another few days, I could. And the other factor was that I was a bit of a loner. I had trouble with social isolation, and they were flattering me and so that I felt like maybe I want to be part of the group. You also say that the character didn't really have a foundation upon which to leave. Oh, yes. Um, at a certain point in the story, definitely wants to leave, but has this sense of, well, if anybody were to challenge me about this, I wouldn't be able to give a good enough reason why I was leaving, and then I would come over as really mean and ungrateful. <laughs> Um, yes, that's correct. And it struck me that one element that was missing from the experience of the person in the story would actually be a biblical foundation. And this has come back to the same thing that I noticed in the other story, that if the character had a proper understanding of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, they would have had that as a foundation to justify their wish to leave. So that they wouldn't then have been in the position of having to say, oh, I've I've just got to upset you. But rather, what you are teaching is not in accordance with the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. I like you as people very much, but I have to leave upon that basis. I noticed that that was missing from this character in the story. Um, You don't spell that out, but I noticed there wasn't this foundation. There was just the subjective feelings of the character and the pressure coming from that community, and there was nothing else. And so, of course, in the story, the person stays. Yes, Um, that would be true of me. When I was caught up in the Creative Community Project, I didn't have a strong Christian background. I did attend church as a child, but I, in fact, I grew up somewhat skeptical. So at the time that I joined the Unification Church, which was what was behind the Creative Community Project, although they didn't say so initially. I was actually someone who might describe themselves as an agnostic, someone who wasn't sure what to believe and was not committed to any one belief. So then you don't have that conviction to say, well, this just isn't right. I'm not going to go along with this. Yes, indeed. And at the end of the story, pressure is put on the person to make a, a kind of once and for all commitment. And uh, and I was wondering about that as well, because it, it seems to me to be one thing to try and persuade somebody of what you believe to be true. That, that's fine. That's part and parcel of you know, what it is to exercise free speech. But it seems like quite another thing to put pressure on somebody to make this once and for all decision here and now as if there's no, you know, there's no room for thought. There's no time for further reflection. You're either in or you're out. Decide now, you know, or miss out forever. Um, that does seem to me to be quite unhealthy, really. Yes. And you have this scene at the end of the story where the character is out in the countryside and they're reflecting upon everything that's happened. And again, all they have is is their own subjective experience and the pressure of the community yes. and this commitment insistence that's there, which I think is unhealthy. Exactly. I'm thinking about all kinds of groups I've heard of where they effectively do that. And this includes um, some of these self-help programs can be quite mm. extreme. If you go to a, a workshop for a weekend And they sort of work you up into uh, this emotional state where you have to say, yes, I'm going to do the the longer program that costs $700 or whatever it costs. And and you're made to feel like, oh, you'll be missing out on something so important if you don't do it. I know that, for example, if you were to go to a a Catholic order and say you wanted to be a, a nun or a monk, they would give you a time for reflection. They wouldn't say, yes, here you are, sign up. You would be given time to decide if you really want to do that. Yes, absolutely. It is that recognition that we're all persons, we have a humanity, and we are on a, whichever choices that we make, we are on a spiritual journey. And there is always time to get from A to B. And for somebody to come along and say, you must choose your destination here and now, I think is an affront to one's humanity, really. So yes, I think you capture that excellently. 
in the story. I'm going to turn to this next story. Okay. I'm chuckling already because it's called Betsy's Truck Stop. Oh, and when I started okay. <laughs> when I started reading this one, I thought, why have you included this in the collection? Because it didn't feel like anything like any of the others. But as I read it through, I got the gist of what you were doing. And I'm glad you included it because it's one that isn't oh, good. religious in the sense that most people mean by that term. I'm, I'm glad you did that because, of course, it is not just religion that can lead to uh, extreme beliefs. There can be many other forms of belief. In this case, ufology. But I'm thinking of other things, Marxist cults, racist cults, etc., etc. So I'm, I'm glad that you did this but it is an odd story an amusing story can you explain what the story basically is and why did you choose to include this i know that you had some question in your mind whether to include it oh yes you ended up including (laughs) it why did you do that oh um with betsy's truck stop i had doubts because it is the only one in there that's intended as a comic treatment Hmm. at the time i wrote betsy's truck stop i was still working through what i felt about being in the church and what I felt about how they manipulated me. And I actually was still not yet convinced that they had uh, used you know, mind control on me or any of those things, which I later came to believe they had. Hmm. So Betsy's truck stop was a comic turn that I came up with, which I felt was in a way a way to... Um, touch on what happened to me, but not, you know, belabor, not get it emotionally deep with it. And I'll tell you, one of the inspirations for the story was a novel by Douglas Adams. I think it was his Dirk Gently book. But anyway, the humor of Douglas Adams, he's so hilarious. And I have a fondness for wordplay, and I I put those together. Uh So I created a character named Betsy, who's a truck stop diner waitress who describes what happened in her town and she fractures words all the time. But <laughs> yes. the whole story is actually over the top, not really mm-hmm. very credible if you're trying to look for a believable story. <laughs> That's why I said what I said at the beginning. A lot of these scenarios are mm, plausible, but perhaps not all of them. But uh, yeah. And now you've said Douglas Adams, I'm thinking, yes, this would fit quite nicely in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think, some of the things that happen in here. <laughs> um, so you've got this small town that's threatened with extinction. You've got this truck driver and newspaper men who exploit this, well, weird chap who's got all these UFO stories uh, and they exploit that in the press really for the sake of the town and this mystique grows up around the town it becomes a center for strange ufology groups and of course this weird this weird chap becomes a local guru um, <laughs> yes. and it's good for the town it works I mean yeah you can imagine Zayford Beeblebrox being in- involved in this somehow and then there's this funny scene at the end when the lightning uh, he's struck by a bolt of lightning and of course all the devotees think he's been abducted by the aliens um <laughs> yeah right. quite a bizarre story in here but i think you know there are some interesting points that can come out of this i know what i think may come out of this did you have anything in particular in mind um i was hinting that there was something behind that truck driver who is the interlocutor that betsy's addressing when she tells him the whole story and he's listening i was hinting that maybe there was something to what uh, jerky joe had to say about these truck drivers being from uh, other galaxies. That's what that's what was in my mind. <laughs> right. Well, one thing that I wondered was that, um, you know, there is a kind of irresponsibility in handling beliefs here. I didn't get the impression that there was any intentionality to facilitate extreme belief. There was poking fun at this strange guy with his odd ideas. And there was the desire to save the town, perhaps make a bit of a quick buck out of the situation as well. But he ended up becoming a centre for all sorts of strange beliefs. And I just wondered whether there was this sense of we should be responsible when we not only handle our own beliefs, but handle the beliefs of others. We can do things not even intending to cause harm, but because we haven't thought carefully about how we're treating other people with their beliefs, we can end up facilitating something which gets out of control. I mean, this is obviously this is a story that's not realistic, but I can imagine how some things like that could happen. Um, was there anything of that behind this story? Um, what I mentioned earlier was that at the time I wrote the story, which we're now going back to the mid-90s, hmm. I still did not believe that I had been manipulated through mind control. So I have Betsy say something like, people say they was all drainwashed, but I don't believe it. They was already mixed up to begin with, and he was just remixing them. So uh, in that story, I'm actually, in effect, denying that mind control is a reality. And I later came to believe that it it is something that happens. 
So I was mostly writing that story maybe to show how how it can get out of control. It sort of got out of control and suddenly Jerky Joe was more than just some mm. crackpot and, and they had to do something to tamp him mm. down again. Sure, sure. It does get out of control. It gets out of control because of the actions of a few people who they'd left him alone or they tried to help him. It wouldn't have happened, but they exploited him. Yes. And because they did that, it became something which was good for the town, okay, but quite damaging for a lot of people who then had their weird beliefs reinforced. Yes. And that turned out to be really unhelpful. And I'm just thinking of how could I illustrate that from my own experience. I mean, we went on holiday uh, just a couple of years ago. We just happened to have a meal at a pub that also offered accommodation, and we noticed that they had a ghost survey that they'd had done. And we were looking at it and chuckling at it, really. And we, we realized the reason why they'd had that done was because they wanted to create interest in their pub so that people who, who go on these tours going from one ghost pub to another would put this particular pub on their itinerary. And we just thought, ah, yeah. so that's why they've done it. But they've actually fed into this whole reinforcing of mistaken beliefs. Yes. And they've just done it for their own gain, but they haven't thought of what effect that might have on other people. And I just thought, you know, maybe there's something of that in this story. Yes, that's true. Okay, the last one that I want to mention, you did mention it before, the one based on the Opus Dei group. I was particularly taken with this story. Uh, this is about a young lady who gets involved with the Catholic lay organization Opus Dei, which emphasizes moral purity and um, to, to an extreme degree, really. And you describe in the narrative some of its extreme teachings and practices uh, self-flagellation for mortification of the flesh, which I don't think is a Christian thing. Um, we maybe talk about that in a minute. Um, and the wearing of sackcloth and also the vow of celibacy. But in the story, I get the impression it's seen as a badge of spiritual status, really, rather than as a gift, um, which is the biblical position on it. Um, in fact, Gregory Coles, who was on this program a few months ago, said, talked in terms of the gift of celibacy as being a gift for the church, so that people may have that gift for the good of the church. Not as a badge of spiritual status, but I got the impression that in this group, that was how it was being seen. So a kind of distortion of that biblical position. Anyway, she is a devotee. Um, her name is Rose, if I remember correctly. And uh, she is, in the story, trying to persuade another young lady to join and you have these wonderful moments where she's daydreaming and she's thinking back over her childhood. She's almost longing for the happy days that she had with her aunt, who was a nun, um, who just did simple things with her, beautiful things with her, like going to the park, eating ice cream. And she, deep inside herself, she's longing for those days. Um, and you have a great moment in the story where her friend, this other young lady who she's trying to persuade to join Opus Day. Um, she and her at the park, <laughs> similar scene, of course, similar to her memories. And this lady simply speaks openly one day about boyfriends and relationships. And she's very open. She's very warm, very human. And it really cuts through for Rose. And there's a tremendous irony in this, that Rose is the one who, in her mind, has the true belief, has really found it. And yet it turns out that the other girl, as it were, ministers to her in her innocence and brings Rose back to the reality of her humanity, to the, the memories of her aunt that she had. And she fights the, the tears back, but you can tell that she's really, at that moment, deep inside herself, plugged back into her authentic self that's been ruined, really, by this group. Um, I don't know anything much about Opus Day, so I don't know whether this story is perfectly you know, reflecting how they operate, but from the story, it does seem distorted. And I think it's a very powerful story. Um, is there anything else you, you want to say about that? Have I, have I got the essence of, of what you were trying to say about this? Yes, that is one of my favorite stories from the collection. It's a strong mm. literary piece, and uh, it was mm. published in uh, the Nashwack Review, I think 2007 or something. It does have a moving ending. Um, I met this young woman at an ICSA conference. International Cultic Studies Association has these conferences. And one year, it was 2003, I think, in Connecticut, this woman who had been in the Opus Dei sect spoke about her experiences, and she actually displayed some of those self-devices you know, devices that they use 
to mortify the flesh. And so I believe that my story is roughly accurate, but because I didn't personally live through it, I can't testify to it completely. I was trying to capture the essence of what she experienced and then using my, you know, imagination, picture somebody in that situation and what they would go through. I think I mostly wanted to step out of my own moon experience and see what it's like to be in another group that's got its own extreme practices and so on. Yes. But nevertheless, that theme of being awakened to your authentic humanity that had been suppressed by the teachings of whichever group it is, you don't just do that in this story, you do it in other stories as well. Yes. You do it in the block. Yeah. And I think this is perhaps even more I'm not saying more powerful, it's more shocking the way you do it, because you have the person who is the catalyst for this as a prostitute. Yes. And the the character who's in the group has repressed their sexuality according to the the teaching of the group. And although the prostitute's expression of sexuality, of course, is distorted, nevertheless, she is in touch with an aspect of her humanity that the person in the group is not. And there is therefore a truth. She is touching a truth. So when she makes overtures to the young man, he is reawakened to that which is still alive inside him. And it begins to open up the possibility of escaping the manipulative group. And I think it's interesting that you do that through the words and actions of a prostitute. And it it just reminds me of, you know, the biblical principle of God using the unbeliever sometimes to bring about his purposes. The sort of um, very counterintuitive thing that we, you know, we see happen in scripture. Um, I think you are doing that a number of times in these stories. I think that's one of the main themes of the collection. Yes, I am concerned about how people get caught up in these mindsets, what draws them in. And then I also think about, okay, what pulls you back out again? And I know that there is um, a writer, I've met him, Stephen Hassan. He wrote a book called Combating Cult Mind Control. And he doesn't recommend a drastic action like deprogramming for people who are caught up in these groups. He says, just keep in touch with them. Keep reaffirming your a willingness to connect to them, and they'll eventually come back to you because they actually want that connection. Yeah. And at the point where they're ready to let go of whatever they're caught up in, they'll need you to welcome them back. So you stay in touch with your family members if they're caught up in some cultic group or something like that. You don't turn your back on them, and even though they may shun you for a while, because they're eventually going to need you. And something you say or do, like if, especially if you meet a person who's in a cultic group, you may want to try just gently to prod them, to ask them, what did they want to do before they were in the group? What were their dreams? Try to sort of remind them of who they once were so that they might start thinking that they want to go back. Yeah. You could plant a seed that doesn't bear fruit for two years or whatever, but it could work that way. I think that's a really valuable thing to come out of this writing because, of course, there is the temptation to go head on and say, well, you know, research the group. What does it believe? And then just try to pick that apart intellectually with the person who's caught up in that group. But we're bigger than that. I'm not saying that there's nothing to that, but we are bigger than just cerebral beings. We're we're also hearts as well as minds. And so I think what you say is extremely important there. Um, Perhaps to back off, in some cases, from picking apart what the belief is. A matter of judgment there, discernment. Lots of fantastic things to come out of this book. Um, As I say, I haven't quite read it fully. Um, Just a couple of stories left to do, but I certainly recommend this. As I said before, it's well worth reading. It is available, of course, from Amazon, but it can be obtained from, I think it's, is it virtualbookworm.com? Have I got that right? Yes. In fact, I have a website that Virtual Bookworm set up. Uh So if you go to newfeldbooks.com, N-E-U-F-E-L-D-B-O-O-K-S.com, You'll find that and the other two books are on that website. Mm -hmm. 
Great. So I do recommend people to get hold of, well, all those books, but uh, this one we've been talking about today, as I said, I think once before I said, maybe it'd be a good idea to read one per day and to meditate upon some of the messages in there. Um, very short stories, powerful stories. And I uh, thank you very much, Gordon, for coming back on yet again to talk about this. And uh, it's been a great pleasure. I hope to speak to you again in the future. All right. Thank you, Julian. I'm very glad that I could uh, talk with you again. Thank you. I was going to say one thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I especially recommend the very last story, mm -hmm. Living Water. I feel it's the most heartfelt of all. Uh -huh. And it is about a, a young boy whose father gets caught up in a fundamentalist group. So it's not exactly like a cult, but he's just a very fundamentalist church. And, and I just feel like that was my best piece of all. And that's the one I've not got to yet. Yes. What, what a shame. So again, because I can't speak about it because I haven't actually read it, is it the case that you are pointing to tendencies that can come out of a particular group that can be unhelpful? Or are you actually criticizing or critiquing the fundamentalist group itself in what it believes and it practices? I, I think, I'm again, we have a preacher who sort of takes it a little beyond, hmm. you know, the usual and is saying, you you must do this and you must do that. And, right. and it's creating such stress that in the case of this story, the wife and the husband are increasingly at odds. Yeah. That's the center of this story because she's not going along with it. He is. And then there's two boys and two young girls, and they're sort of caught in the middle of this. So I don't know. I just felt like that was the story of all the stories that I found most compelling. Well, I look forward to it. And it's quite, I think, quite a good thing to bear in mind that even if what we believe to be true is not extreme, is not cult-like, nevertheless, there are dangers. I think there are always dangers for all of us that we can get off the rails. We can refuse to attend to those balances that are there in Scripture and uh find ourselves going down unfortunate pathways. So I think it's always good to be warned that these things can happen, whatever our background, whatever our faith position is. So thank you again, Gordon, for coming on. Really enjoyed the book and really enjoyed the conversation. All right. Thank you very much. And just before I end today, I want to say a few things. First of all, please forgive me for sounding a little lacklustre because I've picked up a cold from our little one. Um, almost impossible to avoid picking those up with a two-year-old in the house. And I am fighting back as I speak the coughs and sneezes. Um, so don't worry if I sneeze, I will edit that out so that your earbuds don't blow out of your ears. Anyway, I just wanted to add that uh, some of you may be wondering if in our conversation we were a little too harsh on Christian fundamentalism. Um, because that came up a couple of times in the chat. That was certainly not my intention, and I tried to make it clear that I think the danger of going off the rails is something that can happen to somebody from any background. But by way of balance, I thought I would mention my conversation with David Conn, who came on TMR just over three years ago to talk about the cult leader Jim Jones, who of course was responsible for that horrific Jonestown massacre in Guyana in 1978, which recently of course had its 40th anniversary. And um, as David Conn explained, Jones, an admitted atheist and communist, essentially posing as a Christian preacher, Jones came to a position of influence and power partly because he was let through by the weak doctrinal standards of a particular denomination that had gone in a very liberal theological direction. So, you know, there's the point that I'm trying to stress. Going off the rails isn't the preserve of fundamentalists. It can happen anywhere uh, if we're not careful. So, so there, I've made my point. And uh, that's at TMR number 123. So very easy to remember. One, two, three. Uh, the interview with David Conn, Jim Jones and the Jonestown Cultic Horror. The other thing I wanted to say is that I am not finding it easy to keep the podcast going at the moment. The demands on my time do not get any less. My father's health is, I'm afraid, continuing to deteriorate. And frankly, I don't know how much longer he is going to be with us. But that's the way things are. Um, and your, your prayers would be very much uh, appreciated in that regard. Uh, but I am determined to keep TMR going. I've kept this show on the road now for six years and I've put a huge amount of work into it so I'm not going to let it fade away easily uh, by any means. I will keep plodding on um, even if I can't do as many in-depth interviews as I would like. Ones you know that involve me in reading academic book after academic book and, and the like which of course takes a great deal of time but I will keep going in whatever way I can and in as high quality way as I can 
and I will try to stick to my fortnightly pattern. I know I won't manage it always, but I'm going to try as hard as I can. Um, and let me add in passing my thanks once again to each and every one of you who supports TMR. Some of you quite sacrificially indeed, and, uh, and that in spite of my output having slowed down in the last couple of years. So I am enormously grateful to all of you for your support. Though you are very small in number, uh, you do keep this show on the road. So again, thank you for doing that. So next time, I'm very much hoping we'll be speaking with Patrick Wood again, Editor-in-Chief of Technocracy News and Trends, who's spoken on TMR several times before, and we're going to be having a conversation on his latest book, Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, which was published in November. I'm hoping that at long last we'll be able to speak again with uh, John Booth, the Yorkshire-born journalist, educator, photographer and political activist who joined us back in 2016 to discuss 9-11. And we're going to be having a conversation about the alleged suicide of British weapons expert Dr David Kelly. And also, we're going to be joined at some point in the not-too-distant future by Dr. Matthew Dentith, who is editor of a new academic book called Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, published by Roman and Littlefield back in November. And the interview is going to explore Dr. Dentith's own research as a PhD philosopher on the subject of conspiracy theory theory. I love that phrase. What a discipline. Conspiracy theory theory. So that's the philosophical issues surrounding the, the business of engaging in conspiracy theory. So very fascinating. We'll be looking at the various views expressed in that edited collection. So very much looking forward to that conversation. So that's as it looks at the moment. Um, I will, of course, be adding more to that as time goes on. And every time something becomes concrete in terms of an interview, I will be putting it on the schedule page. So please do check that out. You'll find that at themindrenewed.com forward slash schedule. So that is it again for today. Thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of The Mind Renewed, fighting back the coughs. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the not too distant future. <laughs>